We are one of the most sleep-deprived countries in the world. You know, compared with 42 other cities in the world, a study found that Singaporeans get the third lowest amount of sleep. You know, last year, a separate survey said that only one in four Singaporeans gets more than seven hours of sleep each night. Only one in four. So there's a chance that 75% of us may not make it through this sermon. <laughs> you know, most of us probably feel like we're not getting enough rest. Uh, we spend long hours at school, at work. You know, parents and grandparents are tied out from raising kids. You know, even when we're supposed to be resting, uh, we don't feel very well rested. You know, some of us take leave just to do work. You know, I know who you are. We have lots of leisure, recreation, entertainment, but not enough rest. You know, after a holiday, have you, ever, have you ever had this experience? After a holiday, you get back, you feel like you need another holiday just to recover. You know, life wears us down. You know, we have restless hearts with tired minds in exhausted bodies. And our lack of rest reveals a deeper need. I think we long for spiritual rest for our weary souls. Well, the first readers of the letter to the Hebrews also wanted rest. You know, these Christians are described as weary, you know, exhausted, tired, uh, faint-hearted. Uh, their hands are described as drooping. Their knees were also weak. I, ran, I, I went on a run yesterday and, and I know what this feels like. You know, some of them wanted to give up the faith. You know, it seemed easier to them to return to the comfort and safety of Judaism that many of them came from. You know, Judaism was recognized by the Roman authorities as an approved religion. Therefore, uh, if, if you were a Jew and you followed the religion of Judaism, you, you were spared persecution and suffering because it was a recognized religion. But if you leave that and you join a sect, that's what the Christians were regarded of as in those days. If you join a sect like Christianity, ah, then you may be in danger of persecution and suffering. Others among them may have been tempted to ditch the gospel, to go back to the world. Easier just to blend in rather than to live differently. Now, we, we face many similar struggles and challenges today. You know, how might we be getting tired of following Jesus. Maybe it's suffering, maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's just easier to blend in to the world, to kind of go back to where we came from and think that, that's easier. Life seems less complicated. Does it seem better for us to turn to other things? Or maybe we've been searching for rest apart from Jesus. We've been looking for rest in our success, in our wealth, in our relationships, it could be a dating relationship, it could be marriage, or in earthly sources of security, you know, where are we looking for rest? Have we found what we've been so badly looking for? Well, our passage this morning is about finding true rest. You know, the early church father, Augustine, famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Well, in these last days, God has spoken. And he's spoken to us by his son. Therefore, true rest is found only in Jesus. 
True rest is found only in Jesus. And here's the big idea of our text. To enter God's rest, don't stop believing in Jesus. Therefore, focus on Jesus, beware of unbelief, and then strive to enter that rest. Those are the three points this morning. Let me begin by reading chapter 3 in Hebrews, verses 1 to 6. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's found on page 942. 942. Reading from verse 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, last week we heard how Jesus, who is fully God, became fully man to save sinners like us. You know, by humbling himself and coming in the flesh, Jesus identifies with us in our weakness and suffering. Basically, Jesus entered our mess to save us. Because he experienced our struggles, he knows what we are going through. You know, therefore, verse 1 begins with, Consider Christ, you know, consider Jesus. Because of who He is and what He's done, focus on Him. Reflect on the good news of what Jesus has done. You know, I, I think our translations maybe don't get it as, as well as some other translations. You know, the word consider might make us think, well, are we meant to kind of decide whether we want Jesus or not? No, that, that's not what consider means here. It actually means to fix our eyes on Jesus, to focus on Him to not be distracted, to deliberately think upon Him. Think on the glories of Christ and the cross. Think continually, consistently, regularly on the glories of Christ and the cross. Keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee and the, and the boat is tossed about, beaten by wind and waves, you know, what's even more terrifying is they see a ghost-like figure of a man walking on the water towards them. It turns out to be Jesus, who says to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Peter sees Jesus, and he's excited. He gets out of the boat, walks on the water towards Jesus, and, and everything's fine as long as he keeps looking at Jesus. But then he starts focusing on the wind and the waves. He begins to realize the the difficult circumstances around him, and he starts to go under. You know, like Peter, we might start out well by keeping our eyes on Jesus, you know, but we get into trouble, don't we? When we get distracted by our circumstances, by how difficult life is, by or even just the regular busyness and cares of life, by the things we think are better than Jesus, and then we start to sink. We'll sink in the storms of life if we take our eyes off Jesus. So Hebrew urges us, you know, Hebrews urges us to focus on Jesus by understanding who He is and understanding what He has done. 
Now, we know Jesus through His Word, as we've been thinking about you know, in the songs that we've been singing through this service earlier. You know, be intentional about listening to, trusting, and obeying the Bible. You know, do spiritual good to one another by sharing God's Word with one another. And what does the Word tell us about Jesus? Well, here in verse 1, second half of verse 1, it says, Jesus is the Apostle and high priest of our confession. It's a bit unusual to speak of Jesus as an apostle. Uh, You know, we confess that Jesus is our apostle, which simply means that he is sent by God. That's what it means to be an apostle, to be a sent one. Jesus is sent by God, and his purpose in coming is to show us the Father. He is the word of God spoken to us. He shows us the Father, and he comes to do his Father's will. We also confess that Jesus is our high priest. And this really picks up an idea that we first saw in chapter 2, verse 17, which describes Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Basically, we need a priest or a mediator to bring us back to God. That's what a priest does. Jesus brings us back to God in his role as priest. Why do we need to be brought back to God? Well, we have all failed to glorify God as God. We we failed to worship him as we should. Instead of living for him, we've chosen to live lives our way for ourselves, to do what we want. And because of our sin, well, this is how the Bible understands sin. It's really a failure to worship God or give thanks to him. And because of our sin, we face God's judgment and wrath against us. But the good news of the gospel is that God has spoken a word of mercy and He sent His Son to save rebels like us. Jesus died on the cross to bear God's judgment in the place of all who repent and believe in Him. Uh, He is our propitiation, which simply means He turns God's wrath away from us. How? By taking it on Himself as our sacrificial substitute. And because Jesus died for sinners, He has opened up the way for us to come back to God, to return to Him. in, In Christ and in Christ alone, our sins are forgiven. And we are reconciled to a holy God. And we, when we trust in Jesus, we are made right with God. And, and not only does Jesus, our high priest, you know, he, he doesn't just finish the work in the past and not do anything now. Uh, as you go on to read in Hebrews, you realize that Jesus, our high priest, continues to work for us. Right? He continues to plead and pray for us before God. And he promises to continue to help us until he brings us safely home. We confess Jesus as our high priest. Uh, Here's another reason to focus on Jesus. He is greater than the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. In verse 3, it says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And and, and these verses here allude to an incident in Numbers 12 when Aaron and Miriam, Moses' own brother and sister, opposed him. You know, and in that incident, God himself speaks up for Moses. 
Numbers 12. He says in verse 7, Moses is faithful in all my house because Aaron and Miriam had brought some charges against Moses. Now, what's more, God goes on to say in Numbers 12 that, that he speaks with Moses face to face, unlike how he speaks to the other prophets. He speaks to the other prophets in dreams and visions, but with Moses, he speaks face to face. Moses is held up in Numbers 12 as the prophet par excellence by God. He is God's prominent, preeminent prophet. Moses surpassed the other prophets in the Old Testament, but the Son surpasses him. That's the argument in these verses. The Son surpasses even the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Moses served in God's house as a servant, but Jesus is the King who fulfills God's promises. He is faithful over God's house as a son. Well, house here doesn't refer to a physical building, but house here refers to God's people. Moses served among God's people. Well, he was a part of God's people. He is a part of the house. But Jesus rules over God's people. Why? Because he is the builder of the house. And indeed, Hebrews says in verse 4, the builder of all things is God. In other words, Jesus is God. And therefore, he's the builder of the house. You know, God revealed the old covenant law to his people through Moses. You know, but now, God has spoken fully and finally through his son, Jesus. And since Jesus is better than Moses, the new covenant that Jesus has come to establish must also be better than the old. And in fact, Moses himself spoke of the coming of Jesus. Verse 5 in our text, he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses spoke of Jesus. This greater prophet is coming. Listen to him. Deuteronomy 7, 18. The Old Testament law and the prophets point to Jesus. Therefore, the, the Hebrews is urging us not to turn back to other things, not to turn to what we think are better things because there are no better things than Jesus. Don't turn back to the shadows and types of the Old Testament. Don't turn back to the rituals and ceremonies of the law. They cannot save. You know, our own works cannot save us because the Son has already come. So focus on Him. Focusing on Jesus means knowing who He is. It also means knowing who we are in Him. You know, notice these several descriptions of God's people here in our text. You know, if we have believed in Jesus, then verse 6, we are His house. We are the house of God. Not, not this physical building. This physical building is not the house of the Lord, we are the house of the Lord that simply happens to gather in this physical building on Sunday. If this physical building burns down, well, God forbid, but if it burns down, we are still the house of the Lord. We are God's people. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I will build my church. Not building, but people. So if we're involved in the work of building, what are we doing? We're actually building up the people of God. That's what it means to be building God's church. And Jesus has made us holy. Right? He calls us 
holy brothers and sisters. Jesus has made us holy. How? By His blood. And He's joined us to God's family. That's why He calls us brothers and sisters. Now, in, in New Testament times, you would just care for people in your biological family. The culture was very strong. The family-centered culture was very strong. So you don't really care about people who are outside your biological family. So this is quite radical that Hebrews is telling Christians that you have an even greater family. You have new brothers and sisters beyond your biological family. Why? Because Jesus has brought you in to this new spiritual family. So love one another, care for one another. And we share in a holy, in a heavenly calling. Verse 1. We're going to the same destination. As citizens of heaven, we have the sure hope of glory. I think here, Hebrews is reminding us of who Jesus is and, and the wonderful privilege it is to be a part of his house. What a blessing it is to belong to God's house with Jesus as the head. Uh, beloved, I pray that we will not take our membership in the church for granted. Jesus has brought us together by His grace. He's laid down His life so that we can have fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters. What an awesome privilege. Now, we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's a conditional statement, isn't it? I want us to feel the weight of that conditional statement. If indeed we hold fast. Persevering until the end shows that we are truly the people of God. So don't throw away the confidence we have to draw near to God through Jesus. Don't throw that away. Don't stop believing and throw away our hope of glory. Let let me read from verses 7 to 19 as we think about our next point. Verses 7 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. In their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Well, in these verses, Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95 to warn us of the dangers of unbelief. 
Now, this psalm speaks of the Israelites whom God graciously saved from slavery in Egypt. As we heard from our previous sermon series in the book of Exodus, these Israelites saw for themselves God's power in the ten plagues. They were eyewitnesses to all that. They were led by Moses, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. They witnessed God defeating Egypt's mighty army at the Red Sea. They saw how God parted the sea and allowed them to walk through the sea unscathed. They received manna from heaven. They had water from the rock to drink in the wilderness. And at the end of the book of Exodus, they they saw the glory of God descend on the tabernacle and fill the tabernacle. You know, friends, they, they, they saw all that. They saw all that. Yet despite these spiritual privileges and blessings, that entire generation, that entire generation of Israelites, except for Caleb and Joshua, died in the wilderness. You know, verses 16 and 17 of our text say, you know, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And these are the very ones he was provoked for 40 years. The rebellion in Psalm 95 refers to the disastrous incident in Numbers 14. When Israel get to the border of the promised land, they send spies to check out the land, and then they refuse to enter. You know, some, some, uh, one preacher described it as snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And because of the bad report by the spies who were sent to check out the land, Israel grumbled against the Lord. Rather than trust and obey Him, they complained in Numbers 14, would it not be better for us, you know, better for us to go back to Egypt? As a result, the Lord pronounced this judgment on Israel. Numbers 14 verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. You know, what can we learn from Israel's negative example? You know, firstly, be warned that unbelief is spiritually disastrous. You know, don't, don't flirt with unbelief. It's spiritually disastrous. We will face God's wrath if we reject Him. The word that speaks mercy, if repudiated and rejected, will speak wrath to us. Therefore, Hebrews urges us in verse 12, take care, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. Israel was unable to enter God's rest. Why? Verse 19 tells us, because of unbelief. Now, this is a second warning passage in Hebrews. Every time we come to these warning passages, you know, we, we try to blunt the force of these passages by saying, that's not me. I'm good. Right? Don't, don't think that. Don't, don't be tempted to think that. 
These warnings are for all of us, myself included. You know, that, that's what the Israelites thought too. You know, they thought, well, you know, this won't happen to us. You know, look at us. You know, we, we were redeemed from Egypt in such an amazing way. Surely we'll get there. If God judged the Israelites by barring them from an earthly promised land, then how much more severe will be our judgment if we reject the better Savior? You know, unbelief is the root of disobedience, right? It's no coincidence that the first temptation in human history began with the serpent insinuating you know, that God is not good and we can't take him at his word. And the, the, the serpent comes to Eve and says, should you actually believe God? Maybe it's not such a good idea to believe him. You know, we, we disobey because we don't actually believe God and his promises. Let me, let me give us some examples. I don't believe God will provide for me, so I idolize my work. I idolize wealth. I, I chase after worldly success because I think I must take care of myself. I don't believe God's promise of future glory, so I live just for the here and now. Everything's about instant gratification. Let's live my best life now. Or I'm constantly worried about the future. I, I'm, I'm always anxious. I'm, I'm always worried. I, I'm not joyful. I'm not trusting. Now, I don't believe God shows grace to the undeserving, so I'm harsh with people. I'm impatient. I'm judgmental. I'm critical of others. I'm easily angered. I don't trust God's design for sexuality and marriage, so I seek pleasure and fulfillment my way find my own relationships. Now, I don't believe I'm made right by Jesus, so I fear man and I crave the approval of others. I'm constantly trying to prove that I'm right to justify myself in the, in the eyes of others. I don't believe Jesus is better, so I put other things above him. You see how unbelief is so insidious in our lives? Second, secondly, be warned that having great spiritual privileges and experiences do not make us immune to unbelief. Like the Israelites, we have received so much from God. Now, some of us have grown up in a Christian family where our parents prayed for us regularly, loved us, shared the gospel with us. What a privilege. Some of us may be long-time regular churchgoers, we've been here for many, many years, or we've been sitting under faithful gospel preaching for many, many years. We may have heard the good news about Jesus countless times. We may have experienced the love and joy of fellowship with God's people, the church. Many have loved us sacrificially. But like Israel, how might we be tempted to throw it all away and to return to Egypt? to go back into the world. Our beloved, starting well does not guarantee ending well. You know, how shall we guard our hearts against unbelief? Well, verse 13 tells us a remedy for unbelief. 
how to protect ourselves from falling away. Verse 13, exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, beloved, all of us need the church. Each one of us needs the church because we need our brothers and sisters to exhort us every day. To exhort us to persevere in the faith. So let me ask you, who, who is encouraging you to keep believing in Jesus? Who do you have in your life who is encouraging you to keep believing in Jesus? And let me also ask you, who are you encouraging to keep believing in Jesus? Hebrews 3 verse 13. You know, are we obeying Hebrews 3 verse 13? I urge us to make every effort, right? make every effort to gather weekly with God's people for corporate worship. You know, and, and when we come together, be purposeful about how we use our time together. It's not a lot. If you think about it, it's, it's about two hours in a whole week. It's not a lot of time. So, so be purposeful with, with how we use our gatherings. Don't just come and go. You know, our, our Sunday gatherings are actually not primarily about individual worship. Let me say that again. Our Sunday gatherings are not primarily about individual worship. They're about building one another up. That, that's actually a primary purpose of the Sunday gathering in Scripture. Building one another up as we worship God together, corporately. So I pray that as we come on Sundays, we'll be purposeful in getting to know one another, especially those we are less familiar with and those who are less connected. You know, talk about what you've learned from God's Word during the week. Talk about what you've heard in the sermon. You know, share encouragements with one another. Share burdens. Share prayer requests. Pray for one another. It'd be great if on level three, we just see puddles of people praying for one another right there and then. You know, speak God's truth in love into one another's lives. You know, we need one another to help expose the lies of sin. That's what Hebrews 3 verse 13 says. You know, spur one another on to know, trust, and obey Jesus. And not just on Sunday, but how often? Every day. Every day. Invest time and energy into building deeper spiritual friendships with one another. I think the, the phrase every day makes us think about how this should be hardwired into our normal Christian life. This is part of the routine of the normal Christian life. We are exhorting one another every day. This is something that we do every day. It's everyday life. And don't wait. Do it today. Right? That's what Hebrews says. Do it today. Because today is the day of salvation. And this day will come to an end. Meet with at least one other church member during the week. You know, meet up, read the Bible one-on-one, -on -one, pray with one another, join a care group, do life together, share life together. Uh, beloved, we cannot run the race of the Christian life on our own. In fact, it is foolish and spiritually dangerous to try. Join a local church if you're not a part of a local church. 
get plugged in, build relationships, do spiritual good to one another. Now, our, our spiritual well-being depends on it. You know, I'm, I'm speaking to the choir a bit here because you all are here. You know, but, but there are many among us who, who don't gather regularly. And, and my concern for them, if they are able to come but they don't, is that they are in spiritual harm. They are in danger of spiritual harm. It's not a matter of indifference, according to Hebrews 3. Being a church member means we are responsible for one another's spiritual health. We cannot be indifferent to those among us who are in danger of drifting away. If you know someone who can be here but isn't, reach out to them, encourage them, exhort them, urge them to gather with God's people regularly. One of our responsibilities as the people of God is to guard one another. You know, notice these verses are not spoken to, are not addressed to the leaders of the church. They're addressed to all believers. This is our responsibility. We have to guard one another because we are vulnerable to sin's lies. You know, oftentimes when we fall into sin, we're the last ones to realize. Sin deceives us into thinking that we're okay. You know, once I had this heartbreaking conversation with someone who professed to be a Christian but was in an adulterous relationship. And it was heartbreaking because this person kept saying, but we love each other. But we love each other. It should be okay because we love each other. We're so prone to justify and rationalize our sin, aren't we? Sin blinds us to spiritual danger. We don't notice our hardened hearts until it's too late. You know, because of sin's deceitfulness, Hebrews tells us, we need one another's help to lovingly point out our blind spots. I underscore lovingly. <laughs> Confess our sins to one another. Pray for one another. You know, this can only happen if we intentionally invite others to speak into our lives give them permission to say difficult things to us, to be humble and not defensive, and then pray that we'll have grace to do the same for them. You know, we exhort one another. Why? Verse 14, because we have come to share in Christ. We have this precious gift that we share together. And to be a member of a local church is to have a shared stake in Jesus with other believers. Therefore, we help grow and guard one another in the gospel. Now, beloved, don't love our own comfort and convenience more than we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Make the effort to encourage one another to hold on, you know, to hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what we're calling each other to do. Hold on. Don't give up. You know, have we been drifting away? God is calling us to turn back to Him now. Right? It says, verse 15, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I, I trust that we are hearing God's voice right now. Let's not harden our hearts against Him. Let me read from verses 1 to 13 in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So after warning, you know, in, in the end of chapter 3, uh, the author change, changes tone a bit. And, and in these verses in chapter 4, there's an emphasis on promise. This is the promise for the people of God. You know, beloved, press on while this promise of entering God's rest still stands. Verse 1. God has promised that if we keep trusting in Jesus, we will finally share in His rest. That's the promise. After creating all things in six days, God rested on the seventh day from the work of creation. Verse 4. And it wasn't because God was tired, that's why he rested. Rather, this rest refers to how God takes delight and joy in his creation. He saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And the Israelites were meant to share in God's Sabbath rest, to, to enter God's rest by entering the promised land, but they refused and rebelled. And that wilderness generation died. And there was a new generation, and Joshua led that new generation into the land, as, as these verses speak about briefly. But that land is not the final rest for God's people. You know, David wrote Psalm 95 many, many years after Joshua. So if Joshua had led Israel into ultimate rest, then why would David write about a future rest? Right, that, that's the argument that Hebrews is making. Basically, the promised land is only a foretaste of a perfect rest to come. If Joshua, verses 8 to 10, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his so why does this matter to us? Why all this reasoning in Hebrews 4? Well, it means that Jesus is better than Moses and he's also better than Joshua, two very prominent characters in the Old Testament. He's the better prophet 
He's also the better saviour. Right? Joshua's name means what? Yahweh saves. Jesus surpasses Joshua. Therefore, Jesus leads us, his people, into a better rest. Right? So keep running because the better rest is in front of us. We don't look back to the land of Palestine. That's not our place of rest. We have a better rest in front of us. So keep running. Keep running. You know, a friend of mine runs ultra marathons. Right? I haven't even run a marathon, so I can't even conceive of running an ultra marathon. So basically, an ultra marathon is any race that's longer than 42 kilometers. So he, he ran a 100-kilometer race. So I said, really? How long did it take? I said, well, you know, about 10 hours. <laughs> so during the 100-kilometer during race, the, the route passed by his house. So he decided to go home and take a nap. <laughs> And then he ended up oversleeping by quite a number of hours. <laughs> so the next time, he kind of learned his lesson. So when he had the opportunity to take a break, because you do need to take a break, because it's 10 hours long. Right? So they take a break, use the bathroom, have a quick snack, things like that, even sit down and rest. So the next time he had the opportunity to take a break at home, he had learned his lesson. He made sure he didn't lie down in bed. <laughs> right? He made sure that he didn't get too comfortable so that he could get up and carry on running. I think that's a good illustration for this point here. We are in the race. The finish line is ahead of us. Yes, we, we take breaks here and there, but we make sure we keep on running. Don't get too comfortable. Keep our eyes on the finish line. Just as our Lord Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him, may we keep running the race set before us. Like the Israelites, after the Exodus, we are journeying through the wilderness of this world to the promised land, the trials and troubles of this life can be disappointing, discouraging, depressing. Now, we wrestle with exhaustion, with burnout, with fatigue, while we live in the gap between promise and fulfillment. That's where we live. We live between promise and fulfillment. Jesus has already come to save sinners, but the ultimate rest he promises is not yet here. So how should we live in the gap? How should we live between the already and not yet? Verse 11 tells us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Why? Because we're not at rest yet. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Keep going. Don't stop believing. Fight for rest. You know, is that ironic? Fight for rest. That's what we need to do. Fight for rest. Make every effort. That, that's, the, that's the sense of the word strive. Right? Make every effort. Be diligent. Persevere. Exert yourselves. Don't coast along your Christian life. Yes, you know, you can say, oh, but aren't you saved by faith alone? Yes, we are. But such true saving faith works. Saving faith strives. Why? Because we trust that the promised rest remains for us. It leads us, true saving faith leads us to follow and obey Jesus. You know, last week we had the first monthly forum on issues related to seniors. And I'm thankful for so many of you, our seniors. Uh, your example 
encourages me because many of you have, have such a wonderful example of persevering faith, of how you keep running. You know, those of us who are younger, can I just encourage you to get to know our seniors? You know, just go say hi, introduce yourselves, buy them coffee, you know, take them out for a meal. Uh, you know, seniors don't be paisay, right? Just, just, just accept these invitations, right? Let someone buy you a meal. <laughs> it's okay. Right? Get to know our seniors because they model for the rest of us what it means to keep running the race of faith. You know, this, this race is not a sprint. You, know, you don't finish it in your 20s or 30s. Right? This is an ultra marathon. Keep running. The world has its views on growing older. You know, the, the world idolizes health and wealth, thinks about retirement as where you have health and wealth. You know, I, I pray that God will keep us from worldly views of retirement. You know, retirement is not just about medical and financial planning. It's, it's, more, it's more than that. It's about spiritual planning. You know, may God keep us from worldly views of retirement that are ultimately just self-serving and self-centered. You know, pray that we will truly age with grace. You know, think about what legacy we will leave behind will we leave behind a rich legacy of faith for the generations to come? Will we, tell of the, will we tell and proclaim the glories of the Lord to the next generation, as, as it says in so many Psalms? That's what it means to age with grace. You know, may, may we be a positive example of faithfulness, not a negative example like the Israelites in the Old Testament. How should we strive to enter God's rest? We strive with fear. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You know, this fear isn't a timid, spineless, cowering fear that makes us passive. No, this fear is a sober-minded watchfulness that moves us to alertness and action. While we live in this world's wilderness, adopt a wartime, not peacetime mentality. Don't get complacent. Don't take sin lightly. If we reject that, if we reject God's word, that same word will judge and expose us. You know, this fear is to be in awe of God's holiness and righteousness. So verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. We may be able to deceive ourselves and others, but we cannot hide from God. He sees our hearts. He knows if we are trusting and obeying Him until the end. We strive with fear. We strive with faith. The Israelites let unbelief harden their hearts against God and His Word. They heard the good news. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Verse 2. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. We have also heard, may we not neglect the gospel. May we hear with faith to take God at His word. And may the good news of Jesus become sweeter to us because as we grow older, we, we see more of God's love for us. We see more of our own need for grace and mercy. Keep trusting in Jesus 
for we who have believed enter that rest. You know, living faithfully as Christians in the fallen world is tough. We struggle with restlessness, weakness, suffering, sin, as we deny ourselves. But take heart, beloved, we will not struggle forever. We will not struggle forever. Rest is coming. The perfect everlasting rest that we long for shall surely come. You know, one of my favorite hymns says, The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark have been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Beloved, keep our eyes on the prize. We look forward to something far greater and more glorious than the promised land of the Old Testament. We are headed to a better country that is a heavenly one. So don't stop believing. Look forward with faith and hope in Christ to the new heavens and the new earth where we will finally enter into the joy of the Lord. And He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away.